As is somewhat typical in a topical sermon, I'll simply invite you to have your Bibles handy. This is our final of the topical sermons as it related to family, and, and I've really broadened out to culture at this point. I had an idea of perhaps doing one more, but um, this will be the final one. The question being, what is liberty? Last week we had talked about purpose and meaning. We talked about the, the, the void of purpose and meaning in society today. How people are longing for it, but they're not finding it. And the only thing that has really filled that void in the hearts of so many people is conflict. And so there's a tremendous amount of conflict today because conflict has given people meaning. They seek for that, that, that purpose. They seek for that meaning. They seek for that fulfillment in any number of extremely unhealthy ways. And we directed our hearts. We directed our minds toward the reality that by God's grace, our purpose, our meaning transcends this life and rests in the life that is to come. And in doing so, we are never devoid of meaning. We are never lacking in purpose because purpose and meaning are rooted in something that is beyond what this world can touch, beyond what circumstances can touch, beyond our abilities, beyond our, our capacities and rest firmly in Christ in us. Rest firmly in the rewards that he will bring with him at his coming. I want to talk about one more topic that's important for families, important for our young people as they're growing up in a culture that has lost the plot. And the question is, what is liberty? We live in the United States, dubbed by our national anthem to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. We're a nation which has characteristically loved the concept of liberty, which at its very core is indeed rooted in Judeo-Christian values. I think you will see that tonight. But something has happened to our country over the past half century. All of our statements about liberty and freedom have remained. All of the platitudes about desiring liberty and freedom have remained. But they have been refined. A fundamental change in the nation's perception of liberty has taken place. What liberty is and what it means to be free. A fundamental change has occurred. This fundamental change has not just affected society, though it has certainly severely affected society. It has affected the church as well. God's people have failed to go to the Bible to define the concept of liberty. And because of that, that concept has been filled, the void has been filled by society and by society's idea of liberty. And this is a problem. It's a problem on a societal level, but it's really a problem in the church because the essence of the gospel itself is freedom. The essence of the gospel is liberty. Liberty from sin, liberty from guilt, liberty from the weight and the demands of God's moral law. And because Christians, if Christians, are taught what liberty is from culture, rather than from the Bible, we're going to have a deep misunderstanding of liberty and thus misunderstand what Christ has purchased for us with his blood. Misunderstand what it means that we're free from sin. Misunderstand what it means that we're free from guilt and misunderstand what it means that we are free from the law. So today we're going to define liberty from the Bible. And then we're going to understand what liberty means for anyone who has it. We're also going to understand that from the Bible. In doing so, by God's grace, we will not only understand our role as believers better, but we will understand 
society better. We'll understand our place in society better and we'll understand how we can help others understand it as well. Now we begin our journey of learning about liberty by understanding the various contexts within which liberty is presented. First, in the Bible, we see liberty presented within a civil context. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament present to us the elements of civil liberty and civil servitude. That's an issue in both the Old and New Testament. There were masters and there were slaves. There were servants, indentured servants, slaves, any number of tiers of society. And then there were, of course, freemen. Those who, by virtue of their position in society, in society whether by, by birth or by legal right, had their time and their resources bound to the will of another, well, these were servants. These were bondmen. These were those that, by, by, for whatever reason, were bound, their will, their time, it was bound to someone else. They were not at liberty. Then there were those that had their time and their, their time, their decisions, their resources unbound from the will of others. And these are free men. And that really was the difference. Free men, their resources, their time was unbound by the constraints of another. They were free. The servant, the bondman, their will, their time, their resources were bound to the will of another. They were servants. They were bondmen. Going all the way back to Abraham, we see these roles interplay one with another. Abraham, the Bible tells us, had many servants, many bondmen, many bondwomen. He had a child with the bondwoman Hagar. He had a servant named Eleazar of Damascus, whom at one point he literally thought to make heir of his fortune because he did not have an heir apparent of his own. These relationships would span the whole of the Old Testament and even are are seen readily and regularly within the New Testament. In the law, servants had the right not to be mistreated by their masters, but they were also bound to obey their masters in all things. This interplay as I've mentioned, is both Old Testament and New Testament. Within the New Testament, we see one of the examples of this interplay found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. The Bible tells us this. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is their respective persons with him." Okay, so notice the civil interplay here between master and servant as it relates to the biblical command. There is a biblical expectation that servants be obedient to their own masters in the flesh. To serve without fear, to, uh, to serve with fear, excuse me, and trembling, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us. This does not imply that their master is a bad or an angry person so that they're serving with fear and trembling, but rather a reflection of the respect and honor that they ought to have to one under whom they have been placed. But notice as well that there is just as much a responsibility placed upon the master as upon the servant. 
that masters would, quote, do the same things unto them, unquote. What same things? What are the same things that masters are to do unto their servants? See, that's interesting because that doesn't mean, of course, that the master is going to bring their servant tea and give them breakfast in bed, right? That's not going to happen because that's not the roles that each one plays. In this context, though, what did Paul just write? He wrote, Whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord. So the idea is that the master is obliged by God in his liberty to treat his servants well and properly in the same way the servant is obliged in his bonds to treat his master properly. Honor, respect, kindness. These things were expected of a master toward the servant, just as a servant toward the master. And in this, we find that freedom and bond service are not extensions in the eyes of those who see them from a biblical perspective of human worth and dignity. The master was not to look at the servant and to see him as a lesser person. The master was not to look at the servant and to regard him as somehow lesser of a human being to in any way, shape, or form remove his human dignity, to in any way, shape, or form see him as lower as, as, as a human, as a person, and, and most certainly if we see it in the Christian context as a believer. God called both in the Old Testament and the New Testament to regard human worth and dignity of every man, whether bond or free. Rather, the idea of freedom and bond service was an extension of this civil structure within which the society would operate. That bondmen, they don't have their time and their resources at their own disposal. It's at the disposal of another. That free men have their time and their resources at their disposal. has nothing to do with a statement as to the natural human dignity of either man. Both were men. Both had dignity. Both were under God. Now, indeed, as we consider these things, consider in the law the warnings about how masters ought to treat their slaves to to prove the point that God has called masters to see slaves, bondmen with dignity. We read in Exodus 21, verses 20 to 21. And if a man smite his servant or his maid with a rod and he die under his hand, he shall surely, he shall be surely punished. Notwithstanding, if he continue a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his money. Here we have a law that if a man killed his slave intentionally, he would be punished. And that word in the Hebrew, punished, is actually the word avenged. That this would qualify for the avenger of blood. That this would qualify for there to be vengeance taken upon the master because the slave was beaten to death, that there was an intentional killing. The the law says if a man willingly and purposefully killed a slave, that is murder and it needs to be treated as murder. Now, there was then a provision, notice in that second verse, if the slave was beaten, which the law did provide for, if a slave was disobeying his master, if he was outside of his role in society, if he was a rebellious slave, the master had the right to bring him into line. And if the master did so, and this, the, the, the injuries that were sustained 
were not immediately life-threatening, but then over the course of several days, that, that slave ended up dying. Well, then by implication, the expectation was that the master did not intend to actually kill his servant. It was an accident. He was disciplining a servant, bringing him into line, and it just so happened that whatever the case was, he went too far or, or there was a damage done that was not intended. So the servant would live for a couple of days. They'd tend for his wounds. And at the end of that, he died. Then there would be no punishment because it was not murder. It was instead understood as, well, you've just lost a valuable resource to your household. And that in and of itself is sufficient punishment. Now, as we continue through the text, we then read this in verses 26 and 27. And if a man smite the eye of his servant or the eye of his maid that it perish, he shall let him go free for his eye's sake. And if he smite out his manservant's tooth or his maidservant's tooth, he shall let him go free for his tooth's sake. Physical mistreatment of a slave would be sufficient grounds for that master to legally require the slave to be set free. To this end, what we find is that the law elevated slaves in Jewish society to something which slaves did not know outside of Jewish law. The idea that the slave had inherent human dignity so that if a master even put out the tooth of the slave or, or harmed the eye of a slave, if there was irreparable harm due in, in chastisement, if the slave did something wrong, the master chastened that slave, as was his right to do, and in doing so did irreparable harm, the law said it is right thus because of the irreparable harm that you've done to them, because you have taken something from their human dignity, because you have taken something from their life that is, you've permanently taken it from them, they should be set free. You should give them their freedom in exchange for that permanent element of the human dignity that you took away from them in, by, by, by your actions toward them. So the law truly elevated slaves to everyone else's level as it related to human dignity. And what we find in Christ is that then those who are believing slaves were elevated beyond just human dignity to Christian dignity, to brothers and sisters in Christ, to the very point where slavery uh, has been all but abolished in civilized nations today, a natural outworking of civilizations that have been influenced by a Christian worldview that as a Christian worldview permeated the Western world, within the context of the Western world, slavery over the course of time was seen as a natural evil. And it was seen as such as the Christian worldview permeated society and elevated everyone to the same level of inherent human dignity and worth. But what we highlight here is that just because a man is a slave... This does not by any means imply that he has no value or dignity in the eyes of his master. And just because a man is freeborn does not mean that he does not have any obligations or responsibilities that accompany his freedom. And this is where we're going with this. This is what we're looking for. We've talked about slavery and freedom because what we're seeking to do is define freedom. And as we seek to define freedom, we, we cannot help but do it within the nature of the contrast, contrast between the bond and the free. And we see this trend, the responsibilities that come with being freeborn, 
and the dignity that comes with, with, with not being freeborn, that natural leveling. We see this trend continue as we transition our thinking away from civil liberties and bondage to the concept of liberty and bondage as they relate to the spiritual. The first element of bondage and freedom that we speak of is that of sin. In John chapter 8, verses 32 to 36, the Bible says this, Jesus speaking, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Jesus uses the civil idea of servitude and freedom to transition to a spiritual point in John 8. Now it's needful to understand in this just how important freedom was and indeed just how important freedom is to the Jewish people. They were slaves, as we know from the scriptures, back in Egypt, and they'd never gotten over it. Remember back in Jeremiah, before we started our family series, about how in that day, and and indeed until Jesus' second coming, the very essence of Israel's identity is rooted in their redemption from Egypt. Remember how a couple of times in Jeremiah, we've seen Jeremiah say how There's coming a day when they will no longer say that they are those that are redeemed out of Egypt, but that they are those that are redeemed out of the nations from whom they have been scattered and brought back to the land. That the very essence of Israel's identity, even to this very day, is rooted in their redemption from Egypt. This is how they relate to their God. They relate to their God as the one who freed them from captivity. It is interesting that in this John 8 passage, the Jews said, we're Abraham's seed, We've never been in bondage to any man. We are Abraham's seed. That they have always seen themselves as free. Now, Abraham was well before Egypt, and yet they have always seen themselves as free. There is, of course, a little 70-year span in there where they happen to be in Babylon and and Medo-Persia, but they have always been free. They have never regarded themselves as Abraham's seed, as under bondage. they, They are free. If a Jew sold himself into slavery, in fact, the law demanded that he be treated on par with a hired servant, that he be released in the seventh sabbatical year, completely free of any debt, and sent out with a living that the man who bought him as a slave would use him for those seven years, would free him in the sabbatical year, but would not leave him empty-handed, but would send him out with an entire living enough to restart his household. Because the Jewish concept of freedom was was essential to their society. It was, it, it was ingrained into them. The 70 years of captivity were, for this very reason, deeply offensive to them because captivity is, is not a part of what the Jews are willing to do. They are free. It is, it is outside of the Jewish sensibility. Even the vassal servitude of the Jews under the Roman Empire in the days of Jesus was a huge problem to them, which is why they were, there was constant threat of uprising. We talked this morning about Pilate and Pilate wanting to find a way to release Jesus. Why couldn't he just say, look, this guy's not guilty. Get over yourselves. Well, he could have, but he would have risked open revolt because it was a constant tightrope walk with the Jewish people 
as to whether or not they were just going to outright revolt or not. Because freedom is built into the Jewish sensibility. It is this context within which Jesus speaks. And he tells them in John 8 that if they would know the truth, the truth would make them free. It's interesting because in many ways, we in the United States share this sort of sensibility. Freedom is deeply ingrained into our DNA. It is deeply ingrained into us. It is a whole different proposition to, to bring about what happened, say, in Soviet Russia in the United States or what happened in China in the United States. Their cultures were, were of such in those various places where it was conducive to such an overthrow of their own freedoms. Not so in the United States of America. Endemic to our ver- the very fabric of our society is the concept of liberty. So in this way, we might actually be able to understand the essence of the Jewish perspective. Their, their deep appreciation and love for liberty and desire to live free. So when Jesus says, if you really want to be free, you need to know the truth. And if you'll learn the truth, it will free you. Naturally, the hearers respond quite indignantly. How dare you imply that we're not free men? How dare you imply that we are in bondage? They say we were never in bondage to any man. Why then are you promising us our freedom? To which Jesus then links the spiritual reality. He says, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Jesus uses the implication of bondage to tell them that they are in fact in bondage to their sin, but that he has come to free them through the truth. To elevate them from servants of sin to sons of God. And so though they were perhaps saw themselves as free in a civil sense, again, they were, they were vassals of Rome, right? So they weren't free, free, but at least they could come and go at their own pleasure. They were bound in the spiritual sense. But if the Son of God would make them free, they would be free indeed. This would take humility, though. This would take something. See, because liberty comes with responsibility, and that's what we're going to find. Liberty demands responsibility. And if you don't take the responsibility, you don't have the liberty. This theme of freedom and bondage carries through a great deal of the New Testament's teachings as it relates specifically to sin and to salvation. In fact, Paul makes freedom the central tenet of his teaching on salvation in Romans chapters 6 through 8. Let's read a few snippets of that together just to get a, an idea of what we're talking about. Romans 6 verses 6 through 14, Paul writes this, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, unto sin, excuse me, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead 
and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Here we see Paul focus strongly on the implications of freedom, very much so the same freedom that Jesus spoke of in John 8. If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. That when a man accepts this gift of grace, which is in itself free, as in costing nothing, when he is buried with Christ, he's raised to walk in newness of life, as one who has spiritually died to himself, he has been freed from the thing which held him in, uh, in bondage, namely to his sin. So sin has no more dominion over him because he's under grace, because he's freed from sin because he died to himself. And if sin has no more dominion over him, it has no more power to compel us to live in it to live according to its dictates. We are free from sin. So then Paul says in verse 12, if sin has no more power over you, then don't give your power back to it. You're free from sin. Don't place yourself back in bondage to it. Don't yield your members as servants to unrighteousness. And in this, we begin to see a very familiar characteristic of liberty one which we see over and over again, that with liberty comes responsibility. Liberty is not about me being free to do whatever. That is not liberty. Liberty is about me being free to do what is right. Liberty does not loosen me from all responsibility. In fact, in many ways, liberty increases my responsibility, doesn't it? Whether we're talking about a spiritual context or whether we're talking about a civil context, liberty demands responsibility. Liberty comes with intrinsic accountability. You cannot have freedom if you're not willing to assume the responsibility and the accountability that freedom brings with it. And if I do yield the responsibility and accountability of freedom, I'm placing myself back into bondage no matter what I call it. Liberty increases my responsibility because now I have a choice. Whereas before I didn't have a choice. I was bound. I didn't have a choice. I was stuck in my bondage. The servant, the bondman, doesn't have a choice about what they're going to do. They get up in the morning and they do what they're told. They don't have freedom. But you know what? They're also thus freed from the responsibility of determining what to do. They are also thus freed from the, the question of what should I do today? Because they don't have that. Now, I'm not saying they live in liberty. They live in bondage. They don't have the right to ask those questions. But it also means they don't have the responsibility of answering those questions, right? What am I going to eat today? They don't get to make that choice. Are they going to eat today? Well, if they've got a proper master, they are. They're going to eat. They're going to be fed. They're going to have a place to live. They're going to get clothes, but they're going to do what they're told. But the moment you're free, you can wear what you want. You can eat what you want. You can go where you want. But now you have to, you're accountable for all those decisions, right? You're responsible now for those decisions. You're accountable for what you do with your time. 
You're responsible to make sure that you put food on your own table, that you put clothes on your own back, that you have a place to sleep at night because you're free. And because you're free, no one's making those decisions for you anymore. You're making those decisions. But because you're making those decisions, you have responsibility and accountability you never had before. This is freedom. This is what liberty means. And it's not just that way in a civil context. It's that way in a spiritual context before. Bound by sin, living in unbelief. Look, you did what sin told you to do. You, you may go in any number of directions in your sin nature, but your sin nature dictates you. But then you're free. You're given freedom. But with it comes responsibility. See, now you've got choices to make. And those choices matter more than ever. Once I have a choice, it is my responsibility to make the right choice, to use the liberty I have. Let's continue in the text, verses 15 through 22 of Romans 6. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, because your flesh is weak, your sin nature is weak. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness." For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that as Paul continues in the text, he describes this liberty not as a complete renunciation of all accountability and of all responsibility, but rather, if I may say it this way, as a transfer of accountability and responsibility from one master to another. So Paul asks, since we have been freed from the power of sin and indeed the punishment of our sin, does that mean that we can sin freely with impunity? Does that mean that we have simply been released from the punishments of our sin without any uh, sort of added responsibility or expectation? And he says, God forbid. See, even though I have been saved from the penalty of my sin, the one who I obey is the one I serve. If I choose to obey sin, I am still the servant of sin, even if I've been freed from them. Whether or not a slave was declared free, if he went back to the field and worked, he was not living in his freedom if he was staying in the field. If I choose to obey sin, I am still the servant of sin. God has unlatched the shackles of sin which bound me. And now, if I sit in the dungeon, unlatched, but still sitting there, I'm binding myself to its bondage by will. I'm free, but I'm not living it. 
See, the man or woman bound by sin has no capacity to live in righteousness. They have no choice in the matter. They are driven by their sin nature. That's all they know. That's all they have. When Christ enters into the heart by grace through faith, you were made free, if so, that you are in Christ. A part of that freedom is still the opportunity to serve sin, should you will it, but also the expectation and responsibility that comes with that freedom that you will not serve sin, that you ought not serve sin, but rather serve God and have your fruit unto holiness, the end of which is everlasting life. You begin serving God and this not by force. See, the difference is this. When the bondman serves his master, he is under a harsh rule. He does what he's told or he gets punished. He does what he's told or there is punishment. But as we talk about our yoke under Christ, who said that his burden is easy and his yoke is light, if we fail to serve him, we lose rewards. There's a loss of the positive. See, because we are free men and women. We have already been set free from the punishment of our sin. We don't, we don't live under the yoke of guilt and of fear and the burden that if we, if we stray from the path that a lightning bolt is going to come down from heaven and zap us. That, that's the yoke and the burden of sin. Sin is a harsh taskmaster. Sin, sin takes its hunk of flesh. Be sure your sin will find you out, the scriptures tell us. People live in the misery of their own sinful choices, living under the burden and the weight of their guilt and their shame and their remorses and their regrets. They pursue a lifestyle in order to forget it and it just digs them deeper and deeper and deeper into the shame of their own choices. But we who have been made free from that, we have not transferred from one harsh taskmaster to another. We have not transferred from one punishment to a new punishment. We have been elevated beyond punishment and to reward, inheritance. The idea that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The fruit of our lives out of, outside of sin unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. We're free. Because anytime we serve sin, as those who are free, we receive the wages of sin, loss of fellowship, loss of reward, separation, called here death. And the only thing that this can produce is spiritual separation. So I, I hope that what has begun to form in you, as we have briefly studied both civil liberty and bondage and then spiritual liberty and bondage, is the reality that liberty and bondage are not distinguished by one having expectations placed upon them and the other not. Liberty and bondage are not distinguished by one man having dignity and the other man not. Liberty and bondage are distinguished by those in bondage having no right to their own discretionary actions and those under liberty having the right. Both of which come with responsibilities all their own. But we also find that within the liberty of discretion and self-governance is a responsibility to use it properly. And if I don't use that liberty properly, liberty becomes useless. If I am freed from the guilt and the shame and the power of sin, only to place myself back under the bondage of that sin, I may be freeborn, I may have an inheritance in heaven, but I'm 
I'm not living, I'm living as a slave. I have yielded the responsibilities that come with my liberty and thus I've placed myself back in bondage. That liberty becomes useless if it's not used properly. If liberty is not paired with responsibility, if liberty is not paired with accountability, then liberty becomes ineffectual to the free man, to the free woman. The believer who uses his liberty to submit himself to the bondage of the things of which he has been set free is still free, but he will never experience the benefits of that freedom. He will never experience the benefits of the freedom if he does not pair his liberty with responsibility. And worse, he will suffer the consequences of abandoning the essential responsibilities that freedom demands and the guilt of knowing that he didn't have to suffer the consequences that he's in that it was by his choice. We are not freed from our sin without purpose. We are freed unto a definitive purpose. We are made free unto a purpose. Liberty comes with responsibility. It comes with accountability. So we've seen civil liberty in the Bible. We've seen liberty from sin in the Bible. Let's look at one more concept of liberty that's found in the Bible before we try to put all this together. And that's liberty from the law. What I hope has begun to form in you, as I said, is this, um, this dramatic concept or understanding of the nature of liberty. Now, Galatians is a book which gives us perhaps the clearest teaching in the New Testament about the nature and the relationship between the law and grace. In Galatians, Paul is exhorting a group of believers who received Christ and then were deceived by Judaistic false teachers into believing that the gospel demanded submission to the Mosaic law. Paul's purpose is to free them from this error by highlighting the nature of their release that came with their salvation. Not only a release from sin, but also a release from the guilt and the shame and the obligations that came with keeping to the letter the law of Moses. Now, we know from the Bible, Romans 7 in particular, that the law itself is not bad, right? The law is not evil. The law is not a, a, a evil thing. The law is, in fact, good. Paul would call it holy and right and good. The law is a reflection of the character of God. But we also know that man is entirely incapable in himself of keeping the law because of our sin nature. The law was not weak, but became weak through the sinfulness of our flesh, right? The law could not do what God would otherwise desire it to do because man can't live up to it. So the law is insufficient. It's not weak. It's insufficient. It's not bad. It's insufficient. Because we are insufficient. Which is why we need Christ to fulfill the law in us so that we might be free from the penalty of the law for sin, which is death, but also be free from the obligations of the law, the shame of the law, the guilt of the law in our hearts, the thing that stands over us, that places a burden upon us that we cannot bear and says, you can never measure up. It's a horrible way to live under the burden of feeling as though you can never measure up. Christ died to free us from that. Christ died to liberate us from that and simply be free to follow Christ. He takes a step, I take a step. He takes a step, 
I take a step. I go where he goes. I do what he tells me to do. That's, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Follow Christ. So Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 26, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The law, Paul says, is the schoolmaster of history, telling us just how far short we fall of any means by which to please God or be worthy of God by our own merits, revealing our guilt in light of God's holiness showing just how far short we fall of God's perfection. Thus directing us to only one possible solution, which is that I need someone to do for me what I can't do for myself. I need a mediator. I need an advocate. I need a substitute because I have failed. I am incapable of pleasing God, of getting to God on my own, so I need someone else to do it for me or else I'm sunk. It's either someone else or it's no one because I can't do it. I need to take my guilt, to take my shame, to take my incapacity, to take my punishment, and I need it to go on someone else, or I am hopeless. So Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The law of God was bondage, a bondage of obligation, which our sin nature would never allow us to pay. But when Christ enters into your heart, you're not only set free from the bondage of sin, but you are set free from the bondage of every legal requirement as it pertains to righteousness and favor with God. Not because God does not demand holiness, but because Christ has secured my holiness in himself. Christ has become my holiness. Christ has clothed me in his holiness. I am holy, but not on my own merit. I am righteous, but not by anything I can or can't do. I am holy, I am righteous because I have been declared righteous and clothed in Christ's righteousness the moment I accepted Christ as my Savior, the moment I was born again. And then we see this same picture of moving from bond to free. That in Christ we have received the spirit of adoption. We're no longer a servant, we are a son. We're no longer in a position of bondage, but we are in a position of liberty. Paul would then explain this picture through Abraham's interaction with his two sons, Ishmael being the son of the bondwoman, Isaac being the son of the free woman. 
And he concludes chapter 5 with a definitive statement in verse 31. So then, brethren, ye are not the children, excuse me, I believe that's chapter 4. Ye are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. That's, yeah, the end of chapter 4, not the end of chapter 5. He says, you are not the children of the bondwoman. You are children of the free. You're freeborn. You have liberty. So Paul spends a great deal of the book establishing this freedom from the law, right? You're not under the law. You're free from the law. You are not bound by its moral precepts. This is not you in Christ. We follow Christ. But then notice what he goes on to say in chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So Paul focuses in on the point of following the law, specifically here into circumcision, as if the legal requirements of the law of Moses were essential to the Christian faith. He tears this point down, revealing that to place any spiritual merit upon the bounds of the Mosaic law, upon the traditions, of course, we know from Colossians, holidays and the like, is to fall away from true grace, is to step outside of the bounds of grace. doesn't mean you can't do these things, but to bind yourself to them is to put yourself under a yoke that was never yours to bear. And then Paul says this in verses 13 and 14. And this is where things get interesting. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty... Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So Paul then tells us something about this liberty. He is exhorting us heavily unto liberty. We read this morning in Second Peter about Peter saying that much of what Paul said was difficult to understand and that those that are unlearned and those that are unstable, are, are, they struggle with Paul. Because of things such as this, where he spends four and a half chapters pounding into us, you are free from the law. But then he reminds us that doesn't mean you're free to do whatever you want. You've been called unto liberty, but your liberty comes with responsibility. Responsibility. It's not that you have been called to not fulfill the law in any way, shape, or form. Christ has fulfilled the law in you, and now you live out that reality by loving one another as Christ has called you to. Your liberty in Christ has been given to you so that you might be free to serve a higher law, to serve the law of Christ. This concept is echoed all throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, All things are lawful unto me, because I'm free, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me because I'm free, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I'm free, but I'm not going to allow my, in my freedom, I'm not going to walk myself into bondage. I could because I'm free, but I'm not going to do that because that's irresponsible. I have responsibilities. If I want to stay free, 
I have to identify what secures my freedom and I have to live in it. Sin binds me. If I live in sin, whether I've been freed by Christ or not, I'm not living in that freedom. Because freedom comes with responsibility. Just because I can do something doesn't mean I ought to. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. This is important. Christ did not purchase my liberty with the intent that I would use it to serve my own selfishness, to serve my own sin, to serve my own lusts. We see two elements of responsibility here. The first one in 1 Corinthians 6 is Paul saying, though I am free, I will not bring myself under bondage. The second one says, though I am free, I will not use my freedom to harm another. And these are not just principles of spiritual freedom. These are principles of civil freedom. You want to know what it means to be free? This is what it means to be free. You take responsibility. You remain free from bondage yourself and you care for others. You guard them, their freedoms. You limit yourself with respect to those that are around you. We care for one another. I use my liberty to build others up, not to tear them down. Christ set me at liberty that I might use this liberty to bless and serve others. Paul would say it this way in First Peter, or Peter, excuse me, would say it this way in First Peter 2, 13 through 16. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king, to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. For so is, oh, excuse me, uh, yes, for so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Peter calls for God's people to submit themselves to earthly authorities, explicitly saying in verse 16 that your liberty in Christ is not designed to free you from any and every authoritative restraint. Your freedom in Christ should not be used as a reason for you to feel as though you have the divine right to cast off all earthly authorities. But rather, your freedom in Christ should be used to serve God with a willing and ready heart. This is Christian liberty. You are free, but don't use your freedom as a cloak of maliciousness. Don't use your freedom as an excuse to do wrong. Don't say, well, because I'm free, I should be able to throw myself into this detrimental attitude. Or because we are free, because we live in a free nation, people should be allowed to fill in the blank with some deeply societally detrimental thing. The government should never be able to restrain a person's freedom to destroy themselves and others. That doesn't make any sense. That's not freedom. That's not true freedom. Freedom does, is not a, a casting off of all restraint, a casting off of all authority, a casting off of all responsibility. Freedom is recognizing them and being free to thrive within them. Because liberty comes with responsibility. And this is what liberty is truly about. Liberty does not release a man from authority. It does not release a man from obligation. 
Liberty is not a license to do as you will. Liberty by God's design does not free a man from responsibility. Much to the contrary, oftentimes the free man is endowed with more responsibility. Because with the privileges of liberty come the responsibilities of liberty. And in every biblical context, those responsibilities are evident. Civil, the law, sin, we see it every time. This leads us to several applications this evening. Three of note. Number one, responsibility always accompanies true liberty. I think I've probably said that enough now for you to get it. Responsibility. Liberty comes with it. It's a part of the, it's a, it's a, it's a part of the deal. This is something both Christians and society have completely lost as it relates to our understanding of liberty. Let's talk about society first. In society, young people insist that liberty means a freedom from responsibility and accountability of their actions. That liberty means that they should not have to suffer the consequences of their actions. That they should not have to suffer the consequences of the loans that they've taken out. That they should not have to suffer the consequences of the moral choices that they make in society. That's what the whole abortion debate is about. The ability to be free from the moral consequences of their moral choices. And they think that that's liberty. That somehow they're living in liberty by being able to unbind themselves from the consequences of their actions. It doesn't work that way. Nowhere in the Bible does it work that way. God has not designed the world to work that way. Freedom cannot be sustained in that context. It cannot be. They pretend as if their right to do what they want means that everyone else must tolerate or approve of their actions. They've been duped into thinking that freedom for them means that they have the right to demand the time and the resources and the abilities of others. That somehow their freedom to have health care means that they have the right to bind the education, the time, and the resources of the doctors to their will. That's not freedom. That's freedom for me, but not for thee. That's, that's bondage. This is a new form of slavery. That's not liberty. That's not liberty. That's not true freedom. Because if I want to be free, that means I have to put on my big boy pants and I have to take responsibility for my actions. And if I don't take it, then I'm binding myself. I am in bondage once again. And this misunderstanding of liberty dominates social narratives today. It dominates social narratives. In the name of liberty, people are demanding that money be taken away from those who have earned it and given to those who have not. That's not liberty. In the name of liberty, people are demanding, as I said, that doctors be be compelled to treat those who are in need of medical attention regardless of circumstances. That's not liberty. In the name of liberty, people are demanding the right to engage in immoral behavior without the responsibility of, of those immoral behaviors. Bringing a child into this world without the responsibility of taking care of that child. That's not liberty. This is not liberty because to secure the prosperity of one, it will be taken from another. Only one person has the power or the rights in this scenario, and that makes it a form of slavery. This is bondage. We can call it by whatever name we want. It's bondage. This is not liberty because to secure the health care of the patient, it takes from the liberty of the doctor. Only one person has the power of the rights in that scenario. That's bondage. It's not liberty because to secure consequence-free immorality of a couple, they have to take the life of a child. 
Only one party has power or rights in that scenario, which makes this bondage. Now in Christ, what does this look like? That's society. What does this look like in Christ? True liberty in Christ is not in any way a license to sin, an occasion to follow my flesh. Much to the contrary, I am only experiencing true liberty in Christ when I'm living in the freedom that Christ has purchased for me, when I'm taking the responsibility that comes with my liberty. This freedom demands responsibility or, or I have no freedom. I have no freedom at all. Outside of Christ, I'm not free. I rest under the bondage of my sin regardless. Inside of Christ, I'm set at liberty. I am given the ability by the Spirit of Christ to walk in freedom from my sin. But I'm given the choice to do either. With the natural responsibility of freedom, I have the, the necessity of choosing those actions which correspond to my freedom in Christ. To live into the freedom uh, in the freedom into which I've been born. So Paul would describe it this way in Galatians 5.25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You're made alive. You're born into the freedom. You are given the spirit of adoption. And if you have indeed been born into this freedom, then walk in this freedom. One of the Unfortunate things about society is that society has actually legitimately been duped into believing that if they yield all of these freedoms and if they compel all of these things, they're going to be happier. And it's a lie. And it's a lie everywhere that it's tried. But you know, our flesh will do the same thing. Our sin nature will do the same thing. On a day-by-day basis, it will tell you that you will actually be happier if you place yourself back under the bondage of that unto which you've been freed. That you will actually find some sort of satisfaction or fulfillment in those things, as Paul would say in Romans 6, that you are, uh, in which you are now ashamed. And it's a lie. It's a clever lie. It's got the veneer of truth. It's given some sort of fancy political name so that it sounds good. But it's a lie. It is your sin nature convincing you that you want something you don't. It's your sin nature convincing you that freedom comes from going back into the cell and putting the shackles back on your arms instead of living in the fence of, of, of following Christ. Instead of living in fruit, true freedom. And it's a lie. If we are born into this freedom, let us also walk in it. And only as we exercise the responsibility and the accountability that comes with this freedom will we experience it. True liberty demands the acknowledgement that with actions come consequences. And with choices come results. And that the freedom to act requires an acknowledgement of the responsibility to own these actions, for better or for worse. And the people that are free are people who understand this and so are driven by this understanding of responsibility to use freedom carefully and not abuse it because they are responsible for it. Point number two. When liberty is exercised apart from responsibility, liberty invariably dies. We live in a society which is attempting to strip all responsibility from liberty. 
And as an extension of that last point, we need to understand that when liberty becomes licensed to do as I will, to do whatever I want, when liberty becomes licensed, apart from the restraints that liberty has placed upon me, the responsibilities that liberty has placed upon me, the accountabilities that liberty has placed upon me, the restraint of responsibility, of accountability, of helping those in need, of doing right. In the Christian context, when I try to live out my liberty in Christ outside of the restraint of loving one another, of submitting ourselves one to another in love, of mortifying my members which are upon the earth and the sins which do so easily beset me, as the scriptures tell us, if I try to live in my liberty apart from that responsibility, if I attempt to do that, the only way that road leads is back to bondage. Whether in a civil context or a Christian context, a spiritual context, take note. If I refuse to identify and live within the accountability, responsibilities of liberty, they're gone. They always go away. We see it in society. The USA is perhaps the most free country to ever exist. And with this liberty came tremendous prosperity, comes tremendous prosperity. And as people have sacrificed the responsibilities that come with liberty, what do we see today? That people are quite literally calling for, voting into office, clamoring for the government to actively strip them of their liberties and their prosperity in order to experience some nature of security and pseudo-equality. In the church, this is realized by a breakdown in holiness, a breakdown in personal and ecclesiastical separation, the abandoning of sound doctrine, people that are convinced that the grace in which they live frees them to live like the world, to look like the world, to act like the world, to love the world and the things that are in the world. Liberty in the church is seen thus as a license to become like culture rather than just to engage with culture. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law, to them that are without law as without law, parentheses, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, close parentheses, very important phrase, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I have made all things to all men that I may by all means win some, save some, excuse me. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. See, Paul lived in liberty. He said, I am free in Christ, free from all men. And what did he do with this liberty? He says, now that I have liberty, I'm not under the bondage of the whip of God, but I am under the promise of rewards for service. So now I'm going to use my liberty in line with responsibility to serve, to serve all men. And the liberty that I have in Christ me, uh, frees me. To serve Jew and Gentile alike. I go to the Jews, I'm, I act like the Jews. I don't offend the Jews. I, I live within the bounds of the Mosaic law. I don't have to, but I do to win them. I go to the Gentiles, they're outside of the law. I don't do, I, I go outside of the law. 
not outside of Christ, not outside of obedience. That's what he's saying here. He doesn't go outside of obedience to the word of God. He goes outside of the Mosaic law. He goes outside of the traditions of the Jews. That's what he's saying here. He doesn't always observe the Mosaic law, but he's always observant to the law of Christ, to the law of liberty. He accommodates the uniqueness of various peoples, but he never compromises the principles of God's word to do it. We live in an age where the broader church is indistinguishable from the world. They love what the world loves. They do what the world does. They look like the world looks. They act like the world acts. And in doing so, they have given up everything that it means to be free in Christ. I'm not saying they're not free in Christ. I'm not saying that they're not believers. But they have bound themselves back to the very things that Christ has freed them from. And that's where most of the church lives today. Because they don't understand their liberty. They don't understand the responsibility that comes with it. And they don't understand what they're missing by binding themselves back into the bondage to the things that they were once under completely. And unfortunately, oftentimes, when you have a generation of believers that willingly, in their liberty, step back into bondage, the next generation doesn't even know what freedom looks like. To the next generation, the bondage in which they live is all the freedom they've ever known. And we see this around the world. There's pro- I, there aren't that many countries in the world that don't, to some degree or another, think that they're free. Only they have no idea what true freedom looks like. So they only know it within the context of what they have. This is how Christians live. And unfortunately, when the next generation grows up, they don't know anything different. So they don't know what true liberty looks like. Because they were told they were living in liberty. Though they were maintaining an allegiance to bondage. So liberty dies. That's what happens. The very concept of liberty dies out. Nobody knows what it means anymore. Nobody knows what it looks like anymore. It dies at the hand of many who have failed to live in the responsibilities of the freedom that they were once given. The freedom that is demanded or the the responsibilities that are demanded for freedom to stay free. So much more I wish I could say. Point number three. Liberty does not represent the absence of authority, only a change in one's relationship to authority. It's important to note that freedom does not free men from authority. That's anarchy. It only changes their relationship to authority. In a civil sense, freedom of this country did not change the fact that we're under laws. The fact that we're under laws is not an evidence that we lack freedom. The fact that we are under a government is not an evidence in and of itself, is what I mean, that we lack liberty. In fact, these things, authority, government, structure, these are essential to proper liberty. But what it did do, the difference between freedom and not having freedom, is a fundamental change in how people perceive their authority, in how the authority perceives them. In a free society, the authority goes from dictating a person's actions to protecting a person's rights. 
in majority of the countries that have ever existed in this world, the people have lived according to the will of their government. In those few places where freedom has truly been found, the government functioned according to the will of the people. It's not that the people cast off all regulation. It's not that the people cast off all authority. It's that the authority was there to ensure and protect the people's right to live free. To allow the people to have the freedom to live out the responsibilities of that freedom in peace. And to not fear the will of the authority that was over them. There's no biblical context where freedom is ever seen as a release from all authority. This is important. If we are going to take a biblical definition of liberty, you will never find in that biblical definition of liberty a release from all authority and accountability, ever. That is not how the Bible defines liberty. When we are saved, we die with Christ, we raise with Him, and in doing so, we go from the harsh taskmaster of sin to the gracious master of Christ. From a yoke of bondage and of, 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 of the weight of our sin to the, the, the yoke of Christ and the liberty found therein. When we are saved, we are liberated from that harsh taskmaster of the law. We are liberated from the harsh taskmaster of sin into the gracious leadership of the Spirit of God. Liberty in Christ does not remove from us authority or accountability. It only places upon, it changes our relationship to our authority. It changes the relationship we have to Him. From one who is imposing His will to one who is protecting us in order that we might serve Him with gladness. To one who is giving us the context within which we can operate free from guilt, free from shame, free from fear, free from those things. It is a new relationship to our authority that we gain in Christ. We are thus placed under an authority in Christ who loves us and who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows what we need and what we want better than we know ourselves, and who will care for us, who will guide us, who will lead us along. He doesn't stand behind us with a whip. He doesn't prod us with a sharp stick. He says, follow me. The relationship between us and our authority changes. That's the difference between bondage and liberty. It's not that there is or is not authority. Nobody gets that today. People say, I want to be free, therefore I don't want authority. It's not how it works. It's not, that's not how liberty works. Whether we consider society or the church, we're living among a generation that does not understand liberty. But the Bible is clear about the character of liberty. And we need to understand it. We need to live in it. By God's grace, all we who are in Christ are free. We're free from the bondage of sin. We're free from the guilt of the law. You live in the reality of Jesus' promise that if the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed, if you are in Christ. And if we live in this freedom, we have the responsibility to walk in this freedom. And if we're not walking in it, 
if we're not taking upon ourselves the responsibility that comes with liberty, then we lose that liberty. So let us walk in it that we might echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119.45. And I shall walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.